A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. When you sleep, have you ever experienced this, that you cannot move your body at all, but you can be quite aware of what's going on around you? Sometimes you may even think you see or hear things that you have this kind of hallucinations. If you search online the keyword sleep paralysis, you will read a lot of similar stories and see a lot of bizarre pictures about this. So what is sleep paralysis? And how that relate to lucid dreaming that we talked about in a previous episode? How to deal with it? How to understand it? If I have this kind of experience, does that mean there's a ghost living in my house? Or does that mean something wrong with me? Let's find out more from our today's guest, Ryan Hurd. He's the author of the book Sleep Paralysis and the co-editor of another book, Lucid Dreaming, New Perspectives on Consciousness in Sleep. He's also the founder of dreamstudies.org. As someone who experiences sleep paralysis quite often, how does that look like for him and what we can get from his experience? Welcome to another episode of Deep Into Sleep. I'm your host, Ishan. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Oh, thank you for having me today. It's great to be here with you. So I'm really excited to have you. I know you have done quite a lot of research and on the topic of sleep paralysis, and you also came to Stanford to talk about sleep paralysis once. So... Um, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience and uh, also who you are, what you do, and what got you interested into this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, so I'm Ryan Hurd, and I'm a dream researcher and a holistic educator, and I'm the author of several books on dreams, lucid dreams, and a book on sleep paralysis coming out into its second edition on Halloween uh, 2020. It's so great that we have the Stanford connection. Yeah, I came to visit twice. I came to uh, Dr. Dement's class on on dreams and was able to lecture there, and I had a great time. Got to lecture with Stephen LeBurge or uh, follow Stephen LeBurge, and and we both got to share the stage and talk about lucid dreams. And so that was a fantastic experience to be at Stanford. And so now uh, I'm serving a, a Unitarian Universalist congregation as their spiritual educator and uh, for adults and for children. And I am also an adjunct professor at John F. Kennedy University uh, in psychology and holistic studies, where I teach about psychology and dream psychology in, in, in particular. So for me, sleep paralysis as a topic is very personal because I experienced it myself and still do um, as early as 14 years old. Kind of the classic case for me um, in which I had, of course, nothing, knew nothing about the topic and I was having a nightmare. I was in a dream and in the dream was 
there was a phone ringing and it was sort of one of these old fashioned phones uh, from the eighties where you pick up, you know, and I'm like, you know, hello. And, and this voice comes through this very dripping with evil and it says darkness rules. And I freaked out, uh, woke up from the dream, you know, sat up in the bed and said, okay, you know, I captured my breath. And as I settled back down to rest, I felt suddenly that I was trapped. I felt a pressure on my chest and I felt like I couldn't move. And the more I tried to move, the more I felt pressure on my chest, like I was being held down by, by someone or something. And I was so scared. And at the same time, thinking about the nightmare I just had that I, I attributed it to this, this darkness voice. And so, you know, the, literally the voice of evil was holding me down is what my was what my my brain is telling me. And of course, that just made my fear spiral more. And, and the feeling lasted for, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 seconds, and it faded. And I didn't sleep for hours after that. I was terrified. I turned the light on, um, tried to, you know, um, do something else. That's the classic experience of sleep paralysis. Yeah. Wow. That young age, cannot even imagine how scary that is, especially when you interpret that as evil voice and evil is like has a power to hold you down. Yeah. And that's something that I'm finding in, in when I sp- speak to lots of people about their own encounters is, is that belief plays a powerful role in the actual experience of sleep paralysis, because what happens is that we go into a very fearful frame of mind. Because, and this is important, and people who've experienced this know this, is that you feel like you're awake. So there's these sensations occurring of being held down, and we can talk about the science of that in a second. There's these sensations happening. There could be visual hallucination, a vision of a creature um, in the room, or even you know, um, accosting you. And at the same time, there's this sort of this logic, this metacognition, we would say, you know, dream researchers could say, where we feel like we're awake and we're like, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. And yet it is. And so that that sort of ultra reality is what makes it especially terrifying. Yeah. And in my culture, Asian culture also, that's how we hold this kind of belief and interpret that in a very uh, superficial way. There's some like very negative, evil, ghost type of figure there contribute to this. So you mentioned belief play a role. So the beliefs, are they more like, do you find they are more a negative role? Do they make this kind of symptom more likely to happen? That's, I think, an open question. And so there's some research being done right now in the UK by uh, University of London Goldsmiths that's actually investigating that specific question. What is the role of belief in um, sleep paralysis? And they have done one study that has shown, at least through a survey, that people, for instance, who have more a belief in paranormal activity they believe in ghosts or <laughs> the voice of evil, uh, you know, that kind of thing, are more likely to have a negative experience, basically, to be sort of harmed more by the encounter than those who don't hold those kind of beliefs. That's a key that we're beginning, I think, to unlock, you know, um, in terms of, of, of what is this relationship. But belief can have a positive role as well. And I think this is something that 
is not often discussed in the full spectrum of what can happen in a sleep paralysis and a visionary experience. Because for instance, the ancient Greeks had a culture of dream incubation where they would call the god Asclepius for healing. And these involved sometimes the god coming to stand by the supplicant's bed and then put his hands on them to provide healing energies. And there's a very good chance that that these people were sometimes experiencing what we would call sleep paralysis with hypnagogic hallucinations. But because they had a culture primed for positivity, for healing, their expectation perhaps was different and it led to a different experiential outcome. Oh, that's quite interesting. So how our beliefs, what we think about, the power of thinking can really impact either how we heal or how we suffer more. That's not to say that uh, positive beliefs can just sort of wash it all away when it's happening, because this is still a very, I think it's neurologically set to be a negative experience, and that's the default. And it is the primary way that people experience it, whether or not they have paranormal beliefs, or even if they have beliefs uh, or culture around, say, a nocturnal assault, like you say, in your culture, there's some tradition for it. You know, in some United States subcultures where there's no traditions, uh, people experience it as alien abduction. So it's interesting, you know, a belief isn't everything, but it does seem to color the possibilities or, you know, or sort of change where in the spectrum of possibility you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are talking about all these ghosts, all these beliefs, and remind me of your book and the coming out um, on the Halloween day. <laughs> Is that chosen purposely? Halloween, this um, interesting time of the year? <laughs> Right. The veil is thin, as we say. It's, it seemed like a, a nice time to release this updated version of the book. The book's been out for 10 years. Wow. And since then, I've received so much reader feedback, new stories. And interestingly, the research, the clinical research has moved a lot in the last decade. And so I was able to incorporate some of this new research into my, uh, into my review. Yeah. So what's the name of your book? Is that about sleep paralysis? Yeah. So the title is Sleep Paralysis, and it's a guide to hypnagogic visions and visitors of the night. And and this is the basic cover here. Mm. And the new version will also have this this same cover, essentially, but it'll say second edition on it. And what's so interesting about this book, it's never been a bestseller, but it continues to sell enough because people continue to have the experience. Uh, it just seems to be one of these things that that happen to us. And I think that what the research shows is that about 8% of the population experiences sleep paralysis at some point in their life, but the likelihood of experiencing it goes way up depending on how old you are, as well as things such as your sleep hygiene, uh, how much sleep you're getting, the quality of that sleep, uh, as well as things such as anxiety and even things such as how much caffeine uh, is in the diet and things that can you know, indirectly influence anxiety. And so you put that together, students suffer terribly from sleep paralysis, young people in general, but students in particular who stay up late to study, sleep, sleep is erratic. 
uh, caffeine at odd hours, caffeine mixed with alcohol at odd hours, you know, disrupts sleep waves, right? And then just the anxiety of being young. And, and so all this kind of comes together. And so people are very likely to have it as young adults. Well, that totally makes sense. Think about my outstanding, rare experience of sleep paralysis happened during my college years. Yeah, I was young adult, super busy, studied a lot, did not get enough sleep. That's when it happened. Wow. Yeah, that's that's it. That's the that's the case. And, and when I went to Stanford and talked to talked to students, I mean, I think over half of the people in the room raised their hand that they had experienced it before. Uh, and so, getting the word out to students uh, and and other vulnerable populations is a part of of my work in, in hoping that you know, number one, that hey, we can talk about this. Number two, you're not necessarily being haunted by a demon. There's some physiology here in, in it that relates really to dream science that we can unpack. Uh, and number three, that there's ways to manage these symptoms and, and prevent it from happening by looking at your sleep hygiene and, and, and shifting some, you know, kind of key behaviors. Yeah, that's great. Sounds like we can find a lot more of this information in your book. I definitely want to read your book to learn more about this. I think I only know this phenomenon before, but I never really studied deeply into it to understand. Then for college students for, or any other one who have sleep paralysis or this um, lucid dreaming even, Let's focus on sleep paralysis first. Is there anything young adults can do? You mentioned several things, sleep hygiene, caffeine, other things. If they want to start somewhere to help themselves, like is there a place they can get started? Right. So isolated sleep paralysis is when one has these experiences and it's not related to another primary sleep disorder, uh, such as sleep apnea or narcolepsy. People in those camps also suffer terribly from sleep paralysis as a sleep symptom. But isolated sleep paralysis occurs without a primary sleep disorder and basically is sort of seems to be, number one, there's some hereditary there. So you may just be prone to have it. Number two, anxiety. And when sleep is disrupted, those seem to be trigger points for those who are prone to have it. The third piece is is that certain sleep positions can actually instigate it more likely than others. And for instance, sleeping on one's back is known to instigate sleep paralysis more than on the side or on the stomach. And then that's not an absolute. I've had it in all sleep positions. That's just the way it is for me. Um, But I do know that if I sleep on my back, I'm basically asking for it. Students, I mean, right, there's not too much one can do about needing to study all the time. If you're prone to it and you know this, you can say, oh, I'm not going to have caffeine after, say, 1 p.m. because, uh, you know, this is happening. That's, that's an easy mark to make. You know, keep the caffeine from there. Reduce alcohol or cannabis consumption uh, because, you know, these are, again, instigators that mess with, with sleep and its function. And, and how st- strong and secure it is. And so um, easier said than done for some, but, but these are things that we know. Also, you know, exercising at odd times, exercising at night um, may have a role to play. And so it comes back down to relaxation strategies and mindfulness 
And so trying to go to sleep, you know, after having a period of relaxation can be very helpful. Taking a bath, reading something comforting, using music, whatever kind of works for you to relax before sleep can possibly have a way of preventing these episodes from occurring. I see. So it sounds like there are a lot of um, lifestyle change we can make, and there's a lot of things we can do to, similar to how we can improve our sleep quality in general. When we pay more attention to that, if we are prone to uh, having sleep paralysis, adjust lifestyle, adjust sleep habit can really help us with less experience of sleep paralysis. That's one possibility. Um, but then once we are in it, in the episode of it, a lot of people find it's very scary that you cannot move, you cannot get out of it. Some people may stuck in that for long. Is there a way for us to help ourselves to get out of that? Or should we just calm down, let it go, let it pass? Mm. Well, what you just mentioned is actually a, is a pretty good solution to it, but maybe this is a good time to just talk a little bit about the physiology piece uh, because there are some tactics and they're based on understanding the physiology. And so what sleep paralysis or technically awareness during sleep paralysis is, is the awareness of, of muscle atonia that happens during a transition out of REM sleep into wakefulness. And so essentially during REM sleep, and this happens every night for all of us, whether or not we remember our dreams, when we are in REM sleep, which is known as dreaming sleep, most of the skeletal muscles, including the diaphragm, are depressed in terms of activity. Uh, and so in, you know, this may have an evolutionary function, not really sure. Uh, but in any case, when we're in REM sleep, major muscle groups are inactive. They're, they're, so, so what happens with sleep paralysis is the body stays asleep, but the mind kind of wakes up. And interestingly, some people open their eyes during it. And so essentially, you're in a hybrid state of reality that is akin to dreaming with your eyes open while feeling the sensations of muscle paralysis. So one tries to move one's body and feels that dampening effect, I can't move, and it can, it can be interpreted as something's holding me down. And it can happen with the chest, it can happen with the throat. Also, because it's REM sleep, and REM sleep is an odd state of consciousness, the brain's very active. It's active, sort of, sometimes it's more active than it is in waking life. And there's also um, the engorgement of the genitals that happens, comes and goes with REM sleep. And so there can be um, feelings of genital engorgement um, and sexuality that co-mingle with some of these horrible feelings. And so narrative, personal narrative can play a role. And there's actually some evidence that people who um, have suffered childhood sexual abuse seem to have more sleep paralysis than those who haven't had that experience. And during those encounters, they essentially go into what we could call a PTSD, a post-traumatic state, where they re-experience past abuses. So it's very, it, it can be very intense, very, very scary, um, to the point of death anxiety uh, for some people. And the other piece of that strong emotion I should mention is also related to REM sleep. Because in REM sleep, emotions kind of rule the roost. 
the middle brain is very active. The amygdala, which processes a lot of emotions and in particular fight or flight responses, very active during REM sleep. And so when we're experiencing hallucinations and feelings of being held down, we're awake and aware, but more likely to access long-term memory because we're in REM sleep. So we're pulling up old childhood associations with what is evil and what is the folklore associated with evil. During this, the amygdala says, hey, let's make this even creepier. And it becomes, you know, just blown out fear. Uh, so that's a lot, right? That's, that's a lot. And I have to say that the hallucinations, you know, I think only 20% of people experience full-blown hallucinations or full-blown sexual assault experiences. That's even more rare. And I would say very tabooed. It's difficult to talk about uh, because people feel like they might not be believed. So that's the big package. It has to do with REM, sort of a hybrid REM state, shifting into waking life. And how to deal with that is precisely, number one, understanding this is physiological. And so I, I recommend to people to, to have essentially a scientific mantra, to, so to speak, and to say, I'm experiencing sleep paralysis. This is, this is a normal, natural thing that happens. Uh, and so kind of you can rehearse such a statement and that can provide some comfort for some people. And then second, you mentioned how it could be to relax, to let it pass. And that actually is a very good tactic. Fighting back against those paralysis feelings only intensifies the physical aspect of it which can then sort of cause that rolling ball of fear and then more visions and then a worsening experience. Any way that one can relax. And so there may be a way that, that's individual to each person to think about something or someone or perhaps an item of faith that can provide them with some safety or security to, that helps, allows them to relax. And it could be just mindfulness in the scientific knowledge that relaxing is helpful. So it, so it doesn't matter if you're atheistic or, or agnostic or you have a strong belief system um, in a religious tradition. I think attuning yourself to your, and having a, an awareness of your own tradition can be powerful. And then the, lastly, you know, a very practical concern is, is to break the paralysis itself. One of the most effective techniques is to try to wiggle your finger or your toes, because physiologically, this can break up the REM paralysis, and someone can come out of the state with that. Wow. Yeah, I really love this strategy. It sounds like there's some similarity with treating insomnia, this kind of awareness, awareness of the physiology, understand the science behind it, understand certain things are normal, can reduce our anxiety already. And then we can use other strategies to help it further. Yeah, I think that's a great metaphor because we know that insomnia, uh, half of it is anxiety. Oh, I'm not sleeping. I, should, I have to wake up at 5 a.m. Why can't I get to sleep? And some people actually fall asleep and dream about having insomnia and, and the anxiety continues. Yeah. Um, and so awareness of insomnia that, hey, this is normal. People wake up in the middle of the night all the time and this is okay. I don't have to sleep eight hours in a gigantic block of time. I may be wired a little differently. Maybe I'll do something else right now till I feel sleepy again. Like having different kinds of, of narratives of possibility makes a huge difference in both of these cases. 
Yeah, definitely. You just mentioned standalone sleep paralysis. Then, what's the relationship between sleep paralysis, hallucination, lucid dreaming? Because people always talk about this all together. Yeah. So I mentioned how sleep paralysis. The primary experience is that feeling of being held down with intensive feelings. The secondary piece would be what we call hypnagogic hallucinations, and so hypnagogia is a fancy Greek word for at the bookends of sleep, basically coming out of sleep. Or in、um, hypnopompic is the is the other term that's used. So hypnagogic is imagery seen while falling asleep. Hypnopompic is imagery experienced while waking up. Uh, sleep paralysis is likely to happen in in either of these scenarios, and hypnagogic hallucinations different than, say, REM imagery. Sometimes it can be a projection of abstract geometrics, or often repeating images. Say, rather than a spider, it's a hundred spiders, and they're crawling all over the wall.、Uh, so there can be repeating patterned motifs that happen in hypnagogia. So some people are saying, yes, sleep paralysis is REM-like, but there's this hypnagogic element sometimes as well because it's at sleep onset. And you know the definitions I think are fuzzy because sleep onset is fuzzy. You know the physiology of sleep onset is fuzzy. It can feel like deep relaxation to some people. Other people can be woken up out of it and be like, I was asleep. So so there's a different I think you know feeling that's individual. To all of us about what what that looks like. Then the other aspect is that I mentioned, you know, briefly is you know the visitor of the night, right? This I call the stranger, this sort of doppelganger effect that happens,、uh, in which people in sleep paralysis will experience something or someone standing at the foot of their bed, or perhaps even experience them sitting down next to them or laying hands on them. They can physically feel their hands. I actually had this experience two nights ago. I, I felt、um, something's hands on my lower back as I was sleeping, and I was like, "Nope, nope, that's nope. It's not happening tonight." And I I woke myself out of it and <laughs> rolled over onto my side and and went to sleep.、Uh, so some people experience this more than others. And again, the default is negative. Um, this is where the term "old hag" comes from. Some traditions, it's called the witch riding you, or the devil gets you. The、uh, ghost holding you down is another translation for some Vietnamese traditions.、And、Japanese traditions also have have、um, some pretty strong, I'd say, culture around like an entity that sort of wraps itself around you. And so there's these different variations、uh, that we see all over the world, which which really shows us. It's a universal in terms of human experience, or a near universal, and yet culture plays a role. Culture and expectation、uh, play this really fascinating, fascinating role. And so, with, when positive expectation or the possibility of a neutral expectation occurs, these entities can shift. They sort of shape shift, and they're they're tricksters in that sense.、Um, they can become self-like entities. The doppelganger.、Uh, it can be a version of oneself sitting with. You, it can be an ancestor, it can be a angelic, beautific figure, full of light and hope, esteemed figures. It can be a bizarre, a bizarre figure, kind of out of left field, like someone you're like, why is this person that on the edge of my bed? I don't know. There's this interesting、uh, identity shifting that happens once we move out of the fear place 
and we see that there's other kinds of things going on and people have encounters, they have discussions with these creatures. Um, there's all kinds of wonderful historical anecdotes about this stuff too that goes back for centuries. So it's, it's just such a, I think, a marvelous topic, especially around Halloween, where we're allowed to talk about ghosts, we're allowed to talk about spirits and entities, and also that it's not so scary, necessarily, that we can be in contact with um, otherworldly creatures, whatever their source may be, uh, and, and, and be changed by them. Yeah, I have this very interesting image while you're talking about that is some people when they see these creatures either in their dream, you know, or during Halloween time, they may yell and run. And for other people, they may like face the the scary creature and sit down, say, let's have a talk. <laughs> it's very yeah. different approach, huh? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, and those kind of approaches work well. You know, it's interesting how creative people also have received a lot of insight from these encounters. A fashion designer I discussed in my book used to have these, you know, terrible experiences of this creature that would come and sort of, sort of lord over her. Uh, and and then one day, this is happening. One night, this is happening, and suddenly she had this this odd thought, which is like, what is this thing wearing? I mean, she's a clothing designer. And so she becomes suddenly very interested in fabric and the stitching of, this, of the garment that this creature is wearing. And as that happens, she lost her fear and the creature shifted and became less menacing. And she wakes up and remembered the stitching and, and the cut of these clothing and began designing a line of clothing based on it. And so she was able to take this fearful encounter and use it to directly fuel her creative process. Yeah, that's a very um, creative way of thinking about what we can get out of it instead of just full of fear and denial and trying to avoid run away from it. How to face it, how to understand it. It's interesting, it reminds me one talk I went in the Sleep Society I, I remember one psychologist mentioned when we stuck in this type of dreams, he used the lucid dream uh, word, but he mentioned, he noticed it's helpful if we are able to use some kind of method to remind ourselves actually we are in a dream. That actually can be very helpful. And there are some certain ways we can train ourselves to know we are actually in a dream or in a reality to separate these two. What do you think about it? Yeah, that's a great example of how lucid dreaming uh, and sort of the, the, the methods and the philosophy of lucid dreaming can help those who suffer from sleep paralysis because sleep paralysis is essentially a form of heightened metacognition during a dream state where I am aware that I am in a dream. I am aware that I'm experiencing sleep paralysis is a very specific form of meta-awareness that usually doesn't happen in dreams to that heightened extent. And so when one knows one is dreaming, there's choice, there's possibility. And, and there's also this ability to remember things that I promised I would remember which is perspective memory, the, the skill of perspective memory, which we use all the time. You know, hey, when I go home today after work, 
I've got to remember to, to take the bills out and put stamps on the envelopes. And, and when you successfully walk through your door at home and you remember to do that, you've achieved perspective memory. You know, that's, that's, so we do, this is a waking life skill that um, honestly, some of us are not so good at. I had to learn as I got older too. Um, but this is a sleep paralysis skill, a lucid dreaming skill. And so for instance, oh, I'm experiencing sleep paralysis. Oh yeah, I, um, I said I was gonna say a prayer when this happened next and then say the prayer. So that's in a way to, to anchor an intentional act to a memory or to a tactic to see what happens. And so that's a very useful skill from the lucid dreaming community that works with sleep paralysis. If that's something we need to consciously remind ourselves or try when we are awake, then it's easier for us to really deliver it when we are dreaming. Yeah, it is. And so, and it helps, I find, to write these things down, to write them out, to sort of solidify the intention. In my book, there's a worksheet where, where one can write down these kind of things. This is, this is what I would like to think about. This is what I would like to bring in. This is what I'd like to do. Um, you know, for instance, because we haven't talked about this yet, but sleep paralysis is also a portal to the experiences of out-of-body experience. Uh, and it, it's a natural gradation into those experiences. People very easily will have sleep paralysis and say, oh yeah, I wanted to try to out-of-body and do a tactic in which there's a feeling of separation from the physical body, a, a splitting of core self from the imaginal body, perhaps you could say. I mean, whether or not this is actually out of body, I think I leave that to the, to the believer, to the dreamer. Uh, but the experience is phenomenal. It's really interesting. And this can happen very easily from a sleep paralysis state. Great. I have to buy our book and keep those worksheets for my uh, patients because I know there are quite some people, sometimes they are experiencing this and they are not getting enough help. There are not a lot of resources. Actually, in our sleep society recently, there are some sleep specialists that are asking around for sleep paralysis, lucid dreaming-related materials they can really send out to the patients. That's great. And, and I, you know, I need to say that you know, Brian Sharpless, who is a clinical uh, psychologist, has made great headways with sleep paralysis treatment clinically. Uh, specifically using cognitive behavioral therapy methods. And so these are a lot of the stuff we've already discussed, but in a more formalized setting and having a therapist help one, you know, how, you know, using mindfulness, using relaxation techniques, um, using perspective memory to calm down or to disassociate the emotion in the experience so that it ebbs and flows. And, and he's been having some, some excellent success uh, in, with his colleagues on this topic. Oh, great. Yeah, we, we use um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia to, to treat insomnia. And clinically, I also use CBT for, uh, to treat anxiety, depression. It's a very evidence-based, standardized, uh, good therapeutic tool, but people and people start adapting it to different clinical problems. It can be quite useful. And then regarding lucid dreaming, one more question is, you said we after we reach the 
metacognition that we are having sleep paralysis, we are in a dream, then we can say a prayer. Is that easy or hard for people to recognize, actually, I'm dreaming right now instead of this is reality? For lucid dreaming in general. So yeah, lucid dreaming is a learnable skill. And that's one of the great things that's come out of the last 30 years of research, particularly by Stephen LaBerge, is that if there's a strong intention to do so, coupled with a couple of, of behavioral practices, the uh, likelihood of going lucid in a dream, realizing, hey, I'm in a dream right now, uh, is quite high. And in fact, there's even some evidence-based research showing that people can learn how to lucid dream in two weeks' time uh, if they practice specific practices. Uh, and some of them involve intentionality practices. Others involve basically waking up in the middle of the night right before, uh, um, I'd say like after four, after five hours of sleep and then doing an hour of, of activity that's sort of mental and engrossing. So it uses the, the you know, the, the frontal regions of the brain and heightens that metacognition going, then going back to sleep when we're naturally physiologically primed for a big REM session in that early morning period. And that's the recipe right there. Early morning plus increased cognitive in the, in, you know, the uh, frontal part of the brains equals lucid dreaming. Uh, and so people are having lots of success by just doing a few of these practices. It's easier for some people than others, but, um, but most people can learn how to do it. Oh, cool. I remember one technique I developed myself as a child is sometimes I had nightmares or bad dreams. Then I realized some of those actually were just dreams. Then later I decide in my dream or any time if I'm not sure I'm dreaming or not, I'm going to bite my finger. Because what I find in the dream, I have no bones in my finger. When I bite it, it just goes in and no and also no pain no sensation in my dream i don't know whether it's always true but i remember that's a technique i use for quite several times and once i realize oh it's dream like i have no bones in my finger then i can do whatever <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah there's so there's personalized techniques like that so my my go-to for a reality check is to hold my nose and then try to breathe oh. And uh, if I'm in a dream, I'll still be able to breathe through my nose. In waking life, I cannot. And so if I'm trying to induce lucid dreams, I could do this practice during the day, say five to 10 times a day, and seriously ask myself, am I dreaming? And suspend disbelief. That's the hard part. Suspend disbelief. Am I dreaming right now? Then do the reality check. Oh, I can't breathe. So this is waking consensual reality. Well, Using that that habit, you know, it becomes a cognitive habit, and it'll it'll emerge in the dream itself, and then one can essentially that's how one can increase the likelihood as well. So uh, those are those are fun, and everyone's got a different one. Some people say, "Oh, I turn on the light switch, and if the light doesn't come on, then I know." That's a technique that doesn't work for me because in my dreams, it's my light switches are pretty effective, <laughs> so it could create a false negative. So it's important to find something that kind of works for the individual. Right, right. Yeah, so it sounds like if people are struggling with either sleep paralysis or lucid dreaming and the experience has been quite negative, 
there are ways to get out of it. There are ways to help themselves with it. There are even some treatments for it, right? That's right. And that's the big picture is that isolated sleep paralysis is something that we can, we can manage we can learn to work with it. And I would say it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. It's a calling to that you're a big dreamer. Um, and it's about sort of turning it from fear to empowerment to realizing, oh, I'm in an altered state of consciousness that has historically been used for some very cool purposes, healing, self-knowledge, right? Uh, you know, gathering information, visiting ancestors, experiencing other worlds in the dreamscape. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it's the door to the imagination and to the imaginary realms. Mm, yeah. I like how you view this as uh, opportunity as something like, um, more possibilities for us to explore instead of something awful, heavy and scary only. Right. And, and again, you know, knowing that there's this positive element, that doesn't mean to say that you're doing it wrong if you have negative sleep paralysis experiences. I still do. It's par for the course. It's the way that we're neurologically primed, it appears. Uh, and sometimes, I, you know, it's just enough for me to be like, oh, I don't want to experience this right now and waking myself up. And so sometimes I feel the calling to, to go into these other realms. Sometimes I just, I don't, I don't have the bandwidth for it. And I'm like, no, I just want to get some sleep right now. Please leave me alone. Uh, and so just finding the tactics that work for you. Yeah. And sounds like you actually, you are able to manage it. You do have a choice and, and you, for you personally, your anxiety about it is much lower now. It will not control your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also use sleep paralysis as a kind of like a, a red flag indicator that I am in an anxious place in general in my life. And so if I'm experiencing a lot of sleep paralysis, like in a cluster event, like two or three times in a night or two or three times in a week, which sometimes happens for me personally, first thing I think is how much caffeine am I drinking? And then I might discover, oh, wow, I'm up to three cups of coffee a day again. How did that happen? And I'll immediately scale back my caffeine. And then I start looking at other things I can do. Am I taking enough walks in nature? Am I getting enough exercise? Um, am I taking time for myself for self-care? How can I manage my own responses to the world? Because I can't manage the world, but I can manage my own reactions. And so that's where relaxation strategies and mindfulness play a big role. Yeah, that's great. So thanks for sharing all this wonderful information with our audience. At the end of the show, any final wisdom you want let everyone know or emphasize to make sure the message is out? You know, the big, the big message with sleep paralysis education is, is that this is normal, this is natural, this is part of being human and there's resources to get help and you don't have to keep it to yourself anymore. Uh, and so that's what I, I love talking and sharing about sleep paralysis. Awesome. So will people, if people want to know more about support resources and I don't know whether there are support groups out there, will they find some of the information in your book also? So Facebook is a good source for finding community for people who suffer with sleep paralysis you'll find, of course, a diversity of perspectives that go with that. So I'm not saying that I agree with everything that's said out there. Um, in some of these groups, I'm active in some of them. I manage one group that has over 20,000 members. 
and people share their sleep paralysis experiences. And it's a huge group and people come in and they're suffering and they're freaked out. And then our sort of veteran dreamers come in and say, hey, have you tried this or have you tried this or just calm people down? Hey, I was there too. And it's amazing how much community can make a difference and reminding people that they're not alone in this phenomena. Even if you're in your home and no one else understands or your friends don't understand, there are people who do. And if you suffer terribly from it, I would say, where you're experiencing it in clusters multiple times a week, you know, I would suggest seeing a medical professional or a sleep specialist about it because it could be something physiological. It could be related to a larger issue like sleep apnea. It doesn't always happen, but it's always good to be sure if you're really suffering, you're losing sleep. Mm. Sounds like there are a lot of resources people can consider. Um, if it's severe or they're not sure, go to find a professional. And if they need support, they can find quite a lot of uh, online support uh, group or community resources to learn more about this topic. Yeah, yeah, it's so nice to be in the age of the internet because it's so much easier now than it ever has been. Yeah, and especially this year, I think um, people, even people not use internet too much, this year they start learning more and more and there are quite a lot more communities come out, I believe. So your book, Sleep Paralysis, is going to come out, the second edition is going to come out at the end of this week, actually Halloween time. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So it should be out. And I think it's going to take the Kindle version a little longer just because of the way things work. But um, but in the end of 2020, everything should be fired up and ready to go. Okay. So by the time our show is out, I think, I believe your book is going to be already out. Will people be able to find it on Amazon? Right. So go to Amazon. I'd say, you know, search for sleep paralysis and my name, Ryan Hurd, you should be able to find the topic. Great. I will put a link on the show note at deepintosleep.co also. So whoever listened to today's episode, if they go to check out the show notes, they will also directly find the link, the title, all the resource you mentioned, and they can one click go to your book. I would also say, uh, you know, my website is dreamstudies.org and there's a lot of free sleep paralysis resources on my website. And so you don't have to buy the book. There's a lot, especially the stuff about getting help now and the most important core practices for getting sleep tonight can be found for free at dreamstudies.org. That's wonderful. I'm definitely going to put your website there too. I'm sure a lot of people can benefit from the free resources also, at least to get it started and help people to get some hope, know, oh, there's something I can do about this. Yeah, thank you very much for coming to the show, Ryan. Thank you for having me. It was such a fabulous discussion. It was really interesting to hear of your personal experiences too. I know. The the more I talk about this topic, the more I realize, hold on, I actually had quite a lot of this experience when I was young. I was not scared. It's just very interesting how that is without anxiety, how I managed it just automatically. Fortunately, it's not very frequent, but it's quite an interesting experience. That's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> Just like many other challenges in our lives, sleep paralysis is such a journey. We face it with fear or power. It's our own choice. If your life has been negatively impacted by sleep paralysis, hopefully this episode empower you somewhat and bring you some hope that there are great ways to deal with it. 
To read more about Ryan's work, you can go to our show note at deepintosleep.co. I will put a link to his new book, Sleep Paralysis, and his website, dreamstudies.org, on the show note. If you have any further questions, welcome to leave any comments either on our website or under the podcast. Your reviews can be really helpful to our podcast and can help us be found by more audience. If you are a return audience, I appreciate you so much. If you are new to our podcast, welcome. So I will post a new episode every Wednesday morning. If you have any questions or topics you want to listen, please feel free to leave a message and let me know. Thank you very much for your support. I will see you next week. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk, and our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co/insomnia.